As a community, First Baptist Belton exists for the purpose of knowing Jesus intimately, serving Jesus passionately, and sharing Jesus globally. Come join us on Sunday for our traditional worship service at 8.30 or our contemporary service at 11 and for Bible study at 9.45. We hope today's message encourages and strengthens your faith in God. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you here. Glad that you're with us this morning. If you're a guest, thank you for being here with us at our first service here at First Baptist Belton. If you're online with us, thank you for joining us. We're glad that you're a part of us this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. You're going to have to mark some spots, okay? So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. That'll be where we're at first, Genesis chapter 2. And then Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. And then Revelation chapter 19. Genesis 2, Ezekiel 16, and then Revelation 19. As you're turning there, let me introduce our new series, The Family Matters. Today we begin a brand new series called The Family Matters. During this series, we're going to be focusing on quite a few things. We're going to be focusing on marriage, parenting, and grandparenting. We'll be focusing on raising up the next generation, culture, and the family, singleness. We're going to be focusing on a lot of different things over the next seven weeks together in this series. Also, as a part of this series, you're going to have an opportunity as a church to celebrate some great, exciting things in the life of our church. We'll be having a family commitment service, celebrating moms and dads and graduating seniors. And so that's going to be an awesome time. Also, in a few weeks, we're going to have baptism and we'll be celebrating new life through baptism again as a church. Another exciting thing that we're going to be doing and challenging you with is we're going to actually have a memory verse as a church for this series, okay? And so we're going to challenge every single one of us, including myself, to put these verses to memory. You'll see on the screen, the verse is Proverbs 24, 3 through 4. And I want to encourage you, you memorize this in the New International Version. I know you might read a different version of the Bible, but memorize it in this version because this is what we're going to be memorizing together. Let's read this out loud together as a church. Proverbs 24, 3 through 4. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. So those verses right there, Proverbs 24, 3 through 4, I want to encourage you individually and as a family to begin putting those to memory. Now, just a heads up, over the next few weeks, not all those words are going to show up on the screen. So you can't just think that, oh, well, it'll be on the screen. I've got it. I can just read it. We're going to put some blanks on the screen, okay? And then here in a few weeks, there's going to be nothing on the screen, all right? And so you've got to put it to memory, Proverbs 3 through 4. We encourage you and your family and Sunday school classes and small groups to begin putting that to memory. In addition to that, with this series, we want to have you mark your calendar for May 30th from 5 to 7 o'clock. We're going to be having a hilltop family picnic. 
It's going to be a wonderful time of us just gathering together as a church to fellowship, to have community with one another. We're going to be grilling hot dogs and hamburgers. I'm not going to be doing that, I promise. Um, but we're going to be having hot dogs and hamburgers, inflatables, dessert food trucks, table games, cornhole, and a lot more stuff. And so we want to encourage you to mark your calendar May 30th from 5 to 7 o'clock. We're going to be out on the hilltop for a great family picnic. And we want, we want you to be there, so don't miss that picnic. So we've been preparing for this series for quite some time. And we're really excited to get it launched this morning. This morning, I want to start the series by talking about marriage. More specifically, I want to focus on God's purpose and design for marriage. Now, I'm looking at my audience here, and it is true that many of you have been married longer than I've been alive. So I don't want to stand up here and pretend that that I have marriage figured out um, or that my marriage is perfect. There's an individual that you can ask about that. Okay, Um, but I do want us to jump into the Bible together and I want to give a biblical overview of marriage. Now, I don't want to set the impression or give the impression that this series is for married people only or only for people that have children far from it. Not only will we devote one week in the series to singleness in particular, but a lot of what we cover in this series has to do with every single Christian. Not only that. Decisions in our courts and by society has already and will continue to have repercussions on family stability, human sexuality, and now religious liberty. And so if you don't think marriage is relevant just because you are not married too late, the culture has made it relevant for you. Your obedience to Jesus and his word, it may require you to speak truth to same-sex couples Instruct a family member or relative that is about to get married or contend for what's right when it's not the popular view in your workplace or on campus. As we'll see later, our convictions about marriage have great bearing on our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today I want to look at marriage in maybe a different way. This sermon is not designed for kind of the how-to of marriage or the nuts and bolts of marriage or the way to have a healthy marriage. What I want to do this morning is actually I want to go along, um, I want to look at marriage along the grain of the Bible's storyline. The church throughout history has often divided the Bible's storyline in four movements. Those four movements are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So this morning, I want to give a biblical theology, a biblical overview of marriage by tracing those four lines fall or creation fall redemption and consummation so let's jump into it let's start with creation the first thing that i want you to see is that god designed marriage for a purpose god designed marriage for a specific purpose we'll start in genesis 2 but let's let's begin with creation genesis 1 recounts that god created the heavens and the earth On the sixth day in particular, he created man and woman in his own image and his likeness. And together, man and woman, they were to mirror God's character in the way that they related to one another and ruled the earth. Genesis 2. It further details how God created man and woman. And here we will find the origins of marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. If you'll stand with me as we read God's word. 
Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. So here we see that the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 teaches that God created marriage. God fashioned Eve, especially for Adam, and it's this perfect marriage. There's no shame, just unity, delight in one another, and this perfect order. In this passage, we find several purposes, good purposes for marriage. One, God had commanded them to populate the earth, so it makes sense that one purpose was procreation. In addition, we also find that marriage was for companionship. It says it was not good for man to be alone. So, so God created a helper and brought her to the man. And with companionship comes pleasure. So there's another purpose for marriage. You see there that Adam says, this at last is bones of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's speaking poetry here. So Adam rejoices in its wife. Then it says in the scriptures that the two shall become one flesh. In this one flesh union, we find yet another purpose for marriage. Covenant faithfulness. Marriage is a covenant before a holy God. One man and one woman in a sacred union before God. But as we look at those, we, we've got to see the most significant purpose for marriage that we've yet to uncover. For this, I want to look at another place in the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but it's Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. You can write that down in your notes. In Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, Paul will actually quote in verse 31, he'll quote this passage from Genesis 2, 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says these words in verse 32, this mystery is profound. This union between a man and a woman, it's profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Even the very first marriage was about Christ and the church. That becomes even clearer as we look at Ephesians 1-4 where it says God chose us in Him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So even before God created the world, God chose a people for His Son to redeem. In other words, it's not that God created marriage and then decided to use it as a good analogy. 
Rather, he created marriage to be the analogy that reflected something he had already planned before the world existed. And so I want you to see this. Here's God's design and purpose for your marriage, whether you're married or not, and hope to be married. Here's his design for marriage. God designed marriage between one man and one woman to image Christ's union with his bride, with his people. So their companionship, the pleasure in each other, the covenant faithfulness, all of this is a, is a window through which we look to something much bigger than marriage itself. In and through marriage, we get a glimpse of God's purpose for the world through His Son, Jesus. That's what God created marriage for. To image Christ's union with His bride, the church. Brothers and sisters, if you're married, this is why you are married. To image, to mirror to the world Christ's love for His people. That's why you're married. That's what He designed marriage for. And I will also say this, to compromise God's design for marriage. One man and one woman in sacred union before God is to compromise what God designed marriage to image. Christ's union and the church. So my friends, this is not a personal preference issue. This is a gospel issue. God designed marriage for a purpose. And it was to mirror, to image Christ's love for His church. But any of us living in this present age, we know that's not what we experience or see completely in marriages. Divorce rates are between 40 to 50% in America for first-time marriages. Some of us have grown up in situations where mom and dad fight all the time. Maybe you're from a home where mom and dad abandoned the family and left them behind. You know as well as I do, even those families that are committed, those husbands and wives that are deeply committed to each other in their marriages, they still experience conflict. So what's wrong? What's wrong? Well, that leads us to the next major movement in the Bible storyline. The fall. And here's what I want you to see in this. Sin ruins our relationship with God and each other. So God designed marriage for us to to mirror, to image Christ's love for His church. But sin ruins our relationship with God and each other. If you look at Genesis chapter 3. It shows that despite God's goodness and provision in the garden, both Adam and Eve rebel. You know this. The crafty serpent, he comes and deceives them. Eve gives them to the temptation, and instead of protecting Eve, Adam also follows and gives in. Both of them rebel against God. They take the fruit, they eat of it, and immediately the consequences of their rebellion settle in. You see in the scriptures that shame enters the picture. In chapter 3, verse 7, we see them trying to cover themselves. Then in verse 8, they try to hide from God. The relationship is now strained. The husband blames the wife and the wife blames the serpent in verse 12. The end of verse 16 also shows this undoing of the peace that once characterized their relationship. The scripture says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. 
And so the basic idea is that she will now suffer conflict with her husband. So we see clearly in Genesis 3 that sin wrecks havoc on the first marriage. And it doesn't take long for you and I to read the Bible to see that sin wrecks havoc on all relationships. Both in and beneath these horizontal relationships, brokenness with others is this broken relationship with God. Our sin affects our relationship with God and others. Fundamental to all sin is this disregard for God. A desire to be God, a desire to elevate ourselves over God because we think we know better than God. Interestingly enough, throughout the Bible, the Bible illustrates this idolatry as an unfaithful bride cheating on her husband. You see, to be God's people was to be in a covenant union with him that was much like marriage. This was true for Adam in the garden. It was also true for Israel in the promised land. God made Israel his people. He put them in a new garden-like place, the promised land. And he was their covenant husband. Ezekiel 16, where I asked you to turn, I'll ask you to turn there. In Ezekiel 16, it paints this beautiful story of God coming to Israel and finding her in this desperate state, dirty and without hope. So Israel is in the same state that Adam was after the fall, cut off from the Lord in need of mercy. And in his mercy, God comes and he cleans Israel up and prepares her to be his bride. Ezekiel 16 Verses 8 through 14. Listen to the imagery, the picture here that the prophet Ezekiel talks about. When I passed by you, Israel, again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What an outstanding portrait of our God. This is a beautiful, amazing, what an amazing covenant husband he is to beautify his people for himself. Who in the world would reject something like that? This is exactly what they do. The children of Israel, they chase after the idols of other nations. You can keep reading verse 15. So he had just, he had just said this language of, of coming to them and adorning them and, and putting them together. And then verse 15, but, You trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. This is what sin does to people. 
It not only makes us adulterers, people who cheat on God with his creation, it gives us, it gives us an insatiable desire for more and more idolatry, more and more waywardness from the one true husband. So idolatry ruins our relationships with God and each other. And when that happens, our sin ends up damaging God's perfect design for marriage. It happens. And here's what we primarily do. We begin to primarily think that marriage is about us. It's about me. However, marriage is not first and foremost about you and your feelings. It's about God and His purpose in Jesus Christ. If you believe that marriage is primarily about you, that works from the assumption that marriage is an institution of personal fulfillment. It views marriage as first about me and my personal life goals, my preferences, my wants. What can I get out of this relationship? And when we do that, we fail to see that marriage is first and foremost about God and His saving purpose in Jesus. So if God designed marriage to image Christ's covenant commitment to His people, even when we didn't deserve it, then staying married is about loving our spouse for Christ's sake, even through the times we don't feel like it. This is ultimately why you remain faithful to your husband and your wife. It mirrors, it pictures Christ's love for His church. But marriage won't rightly image Christ's relationship with His people if we're kicking against the Creator's design for it in place of our sin and our idolatry. So let me say to you, the problem in your marriage is not your spouse. Oh, but Matt, you don't know my spouse. The, the primary issue in your marriage is not that you need a different scenery. It's not that you need more money. It's not that you need your wife or your husband to do something differently. That is not the primary problem or issue in your marriage. The problem and primary issue in your marriage is your sinfulness. It's your sin. Not your spouse's sin. It's your sin. Your marriage or your future marriage exists in a world that does not function as God intended. And you bring your sinfulness into your marriage. You and I are sinful people. And we don't get to be married to someone perfect. And your spouse is not married to someone perfect either. That's the problem in marriage, is we're sinful people. But thanks be to God that the storyline of the Bible doesn't end there. Now we move to redemption. We move to redemption. God loves and pursues His unfaithful bride. God's redemption in Christ. As we noted earlier from Ephesians, God had a plan in place with Christ even before He created the world. 
And that should give us hope for our marriages and our other relationships. Even before we sin, God already had a plan to save us. We get a glimpse of this plan as early as Genesis 3.15. Adam failed to protect Eve from the serpent's lies. But God promises what? A coming offspring that would destroy the serpent altogether. As the storyline of the Bible continues, the prophets give even further hints that, that God will save His faithless people. If you continue reading if Ezekiel 16, you'll see, um, you'll see it ends with this promise. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Here's why. When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. All the guilt, all the shame before God, because of their love affair with idols, God takes it away, wipes clean, sins forgiven, punishment atoned, wrath averted, redemption. Atonement. You've probably read Hosea. It's a promise and similar hope. It makes this marriage analogy explicit. Hosea 2.16 says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 62 verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. So in other words, as the storyline progresses, the Old Testament is is serving up the expectation that God is going to act as a husband who comes and rescues his bride even when she has been unfaithful to him. And then what do we see as we enter into the New Testament? Jesus, God in flesh, comes into the picture. And what do we find him doing? He's being that husband. He's being that husband. He's, he's at the wedding feast in Canaan, John chapter 2. He's turning water into wine. Why? Because he is the true husband who comes to prepare the wet, true wedding feast of God's kingdom. In John 3, verse 29, John the Baptist, he's the best man at a wedding. He writes these, it, it, these words. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John the baptizer, he can hear the church bells ringing because the bridegroom is finally here to take his bride. And how does John the baptizer end it? He says, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. So here we see Jesus, the one true husband. What does he do? Does he fail his bride like Adam and Eve? Does he flirt with other idols like Israel did to Yahweh? No, he obeys God completely. Even to the point of giving his life up for his unfaithful bride. And that's how God makes us right with him. 
God pours out His wrath on Jesus in our place, forgives our sins. He makes us holy through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Jesus gave Himself up for us sacrificially at every turn so that He might set us apart for Himself, wash us, purify us, and in the end present us to Himself in the splendor of glory. So then we see in the Scriptures when it comes to marriage, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrificially giving himself up for her. So what does this have to do with marriage? What does the Bible storyline of redemption have to do with marriage? Everything. Our understanding and embracing the gospel of Jesus is what fixes, drives, and motivates our relationship with our spouse. Said another way, since sin is the problem and issue in your marriage, Jesus is the only hope for your marriage. He's the only hope for your marriage. And that leads us right into the final movement in the Bible storyline. The consummation of all things. Jesus Christ will adorn His bride in splendor and dwell with her for eternity. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Drop down to chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now jump down to verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, don't miss that before reading the rest of chapter 21. He's about to describe a city, but he says here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And look at what he does. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal this is what the bride looks like he's not merely describing a place to go he's describing a people that we will be 
will be the perfected temple where God's presence dwells and beautifies everything. He delights in His bride. He adorns His bride. And I don't know where you find your marriage at today, but there's coming a day where even the most intimate marriage relationship now will seem like nothing in comparison to the intimacy we'll experience with the Lord Jesus for eternity. Nothing in comparison. And this is exactly why we come to the Bible to listen to our bridegroom speak of his love for his bride. This is what our prayers should be like as a, as a bride anxiously awaits to walk down the aisle to see her husband. That's what our prayers should look like. The day of splendor cannot come soon enough. We will one day be with our bridegroom for eternity. And so we long for him to come and bring us home. God designed marriage between one man and one woman to image Christ's union with his people. And one day, that will be fulfilled and completed upon his return. So brothers and sisters, those of you who are married, those of you who have the desire to be married, may our present marriages and those marriages still to come be vessels that God uses to display his love for the world in Jesus. And may they shape our longing to be in his presence for eternity. This is God's design and purpose for your marriage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, Jesus, were a faithful husband, that you willingly laid down your life for us, you came to rescue and redeem us, to set us free from our sin. You who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ. So Jesus, we thank you for that. God, we thank you that for marriage, we thank you that, that we have the opportunity in our marriages to image, to mirror your love for the church how we love our spouse, how we treat our husband and our wife, reveals to the world your love for your people. And so God, I pray that during this time of invitation as we sing, Lord, I pray that our time in the Word as we look through the storyline of Scripture from your creation of marriage, the fall to redemption, to ultimately the consummation of all things. Oh God, I pray that you would rescue marriages. I pray that you would strengthen marriages. Lord, I pray for those marriages um, that have yet to take place. Lord, that you would help the men and the women in this room, that they would capture their hearts, that one day when they are married, they would know exactly why You've put those two people together. 
Lord, I pray for all of us that we can encourage marriages. We can speak into marriages. So God, we thank you for the opportunity to display through our marriages your love for the church and we long for your return. That we may be with you for eternity. And it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. I'll ask you to stand. We'll sing a song of invitation. I'm down here at the front. We have other pastors available to pray. Maybe you're, maybe you're here with your spouse. Maybe you spend some time just praying together. The altar's open. You can come and pray. Maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe you need to, um, to go to a brother or sister and to just talk and pray. I encourage you to do that during this time of invitation. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or if you need to talk with someone. We're here to listen, help, and encourage.